History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. you spooktacular people welcome to this 267th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i am your host diane on this episode we're going to be over in pennsylvania near philadelphia we're going to be checking out fort mifflin this was suggested to me by our listener drea hahn she also did a ton of research this is a location that she's been to several times and she's a reenactor so she's been there as a reenactor as well she has a few experiences of her own to share we love that here before we get into that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Jim, Andrea, Patricia, Brian, Tracy, Leslie, Johnny, Jenny, and Maureen. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. There was a rather peculiar tradition that started in southern England that was meant to free a dead person from any sin they may have committed. Upon the death of a person of prestige, a certain outcast from the edge of the village would be brought to the home. This person was an outcast because they were thought to carry the sins that they ate. You heard that right. These people were known as sin eaters. The ritual usually consisted of a body or casket being carried out of a home and past the sin eater. The deceased family would pass a bowl of beer, a loaf of bread, and a sixpence to the sin eater over the body of the dead person. The sin eater would say an incantation and then eat the food. Sometimes the ritual would take place inside the home. A plate of salt was placed on the chest of the departed, and then a loaf of bread was placed on top of that with a mug of ale next to that. The sin eater would whisper over the body and consume the food. This whole ritual signified that the sins of the dead person had been eaten away. They could then pass on to heaven and be saved from walking the earth as a spirit or even as something undead. The 1926 book Funeral Customs by Bertram S. Puckle reads... Professor Evans of the Presbyterian College, Carmathan, actually saw a sin eater about the year 1825, who was then living near Lanwinog, Cardiganshire. And that's Welsh, so I'm sure I butchered it. Abhorred by the superstitious villagers as a thing unclean, the sin eater cut himself off from all social intercourse with his fellow creatures by reason of the life he had chosen. He lived as a rule in a remote place by himself, and those who chanced to meet him avoided him as they would a leper. This unfortunate was held to be the associate of evil spirits and given to witchcraft, incantations, and unholy practices. Only when a death took place did they seek him out, and when his purpose was accomplished, they burned the wooden bowl and platter from which he'd eaten the food handed across or placed on the corpse for his consumption. Believing that someone could eat away the sins of another human certainly is odd.
And now, this month in history. month of July on the 12th in 1933, the first three-wheeled multi-directional Dymaxion car was manufactured in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Architect, engineer, and philosopher Buckminster Fuller designed the car as part of his goal to live his life as a, quote, experiment to find what a single individual can contribute to changing the world and benefiting all humanity, end quote. Fuller first sketched out the car in 1927. It was part aircraft, part automobile with wings that inflated. Fuller asked his friend, the sculptor Isamu Noguchi, to make more sketches of the car, and the final design was an elongated teardrop with a rear third wheel that lifted off the ground. There was also a tail fin. The name Dymaxion was a combination of the words dynamic, maximum, and ion. It was a name Fuller used as his own personal brand. Under this brand, he created not only the car, but the geodesic dome and the Dymaxion house, which was made of lightweight aluminum and could be shipped by air and assembled on site. Production began on the Dymaxion car in Bridgeport, with the final car being made of ash wood covered with an aluminum skin and topped with a painted canvas roof. The engine was in the rear, much like the Volkswagen Beetle. It could reach a speed of 120 miles per hour and average 28 miles per gallon of gasoline. The car went on display at the Century of Progress Exposition in Chicago. Production of the car went downhill after that when investors backed out after professional driver Francis Turner was killed driving the car during a demonstration. In 2008, the only surviving Dymaxion was featured in an exhibit at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York City that was dedicated to the work of Buckminster Fuller. Fort Mifflin stands on Mud Island as a reminder of a time when the original capital city of our new nation, Philadelphia, was in need of defense. The British commissioned the fort in 1771, but it would be the Americans who would finish the construction. The fort would witness the greatest sea battle of the Revolutionary War. Hundreds lost their lives here during that war. When the Civil War raged, the fort served as a Confederate prison. This kind of history lends itself to paranormal activity, and there are many stories of a variety of ghosts walking among the casements and barracks. Join me and listener Drea Hahn as we share the history and hauntings of Fort Mifflin. Well, everybody, I'm very excited to have listener Drea Hahn on with me. She is the one who suggested this location, Fort Mifflin. It has been on my radar for a really long time. I just haven't gotten around to it. And when she suggested it, I said, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. How are you doing, Drea? I know we're recording this on Friday the 13th. So hopefully we have a lot of luck and nothing happens with any of the equipment. (laughs) Well, Drea, the first thing I want to ask you about, I always ask people about what got you interested in the paranormal, and I'd love to know that. But you're a reenactor, and I don't think I've ever had anybody on that does reenacting. So I would like to know a little bit more about that. What got you into that, and where have you done that? Well, um, so I actually started out going to college down in Maryland, and a friend was involved in this hobby, invited me out for an event, and I said, you know, put on some funny clothes, go hang out at a historical place right up my alley. This sounds fantastic. And first place I actually went was Ford Frederick in Maryland and absolutely fell in love with it. So reenacting, it's, you know, when you go to historical sites and you see all the people dressed up in funny clothes, that's us. Um, and <laughs> I don't know that I would call them funny, but if you're in period clothing, yes, it's not a ghost. Um, you know, it, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, a lot of the people that do this 
they are educators, they're amateur historians, some people just like to go and travel to cool places and talk to visitors about them. So there's a lot of different reasons that people are drawn to it. But basically what happens is there are groups that represent actual regiments and units that existed during the Revolutionary War. So you can find one, you join one. A lot of times they will help you acquire the clothing, you learn a little bit about the history and it's a nonprofit volunteer kind of based thing. So what happens is you have a schedule and when it's time for an event, you go to the site and you know, we're really lucky as historical reenactors because not only do I get to indulge my interests in seeing places, but often we get to stay at the sites for the weekend and we get to experience them after the tourists and the staff have gone home. So places like Colonial Williamsburg that you talked about, George Washington's home, Mount Vernon, the city of Savannah, and Fort Mifflin that we're talking about today, those are places we've actually gotten to stay for the weekend. And throwing in a shameless plug, if this sounds like fun and you like history and you like camping, I belong to the 2nd New Jersey Regiment. We're always looking for new members and friends for the group. So you can find us on Facebook at 2nd New Jersey Regiment. If you visit our website, 2nj.org, our schedule is there. So if you find something that we're going to be at, pop by, say hi, I'll be there. I'll be happy to show you around. And if it sounds interesting, please approach your local historians and they will be happy to share. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. And anytime I hear about people who do reenacting, I always wonder, do you find as reenactors that you experience more paranormal activity, maybe because you are in period clothing? And so that's getting the spirits to maybe want to interact with you more, thinking that you're kind of on the same level as them? I'm not really sure about that. I think a lot of it may be just because we are present and we are at these sites, you know, when things quiet down for the night. I think a lot of it, too, is that we approach these places, you know, with a sense of respect Mm -hmm. that we are interpreting the lives and actions of these people and we do so out of respect. But I think you're right, because when people come in and start doing a lot of the taunting and you're not going to get as much activity or you're going to get more angry activity than you would if you're just coming in, like you said, with respect and showing that you want to give some honor to the history that's there. So what got you into the paranormal? So I've always been drawn to old places and certain time periods and some locations have just always felt a certain way to me. And odd occurrences, coincidences, that's just always been part of the course in my life. So I just take it with a grain of salt. One of the houses that I lived in did have some kind of a presence and never got creeped out, just always accepted that there were things out there that we haven't explained yet and that we might not understand yet. And that's just how the world is. So these experiences that you had in your home, was it little things like doors opening and closing on their own or was it seeing a ghost? It was <laughs> it was an old home in New Jersey uh, where some roommates and I were living. And, you know, if you're staying downstairs watching TV, maybe all of a sudden you would get this overwhelming feeling of turn off the TV and go upstairs. You don't want to be in this room right now. Hmm. Didn't happen all the time. It was it was kind of random. But about once or twice a week, you just get that feeling. And sometimes I would say, okay, you win. I'm going upstairs. It's time for bed anyway. And sometimes I would kind of say, well, I really want to finish the show. So can you just leave me alone for a little bit? I'll go after this. And amazingly enough, it just kind of went away. Sometimes I would also get 
creeped out just going up the stairs and going down the hallway. So imagine a grown woman sprinting from the bathroom to the bedroom and slamming the door behind her. So a lot of that was going on. (laughs) And one of my roommates, actually, I was sitting in one of the rooms and all of a sudden he comes sprinting down the hallway, runs into the room, slams the door behind him. And he says, hey, don't go out in the hallway right now. I just ran into a woman and a child coming up the stairs. Wow. So, okay. <laughs> but but things like that. Very interesting. Fort Mifflin, this is a great location. We love forts because there's so much that happened there historically. And then, of course, that usually lends itself to some paranormal activity. This is near Philadelphia. And for anybody who listens to the Twisted Philly podcast or you've heard Dina on with us before, she's talked a little bit about Philly and William Penn, who founded Philadelphia. And he was a Quaker, which means he wasn't really into the war thing. So he didn't really think much about defense. But unfortunately, Philadelphia was a very successful port city and they needed some protection. And so that's when uh, the idea of we need to build a fort here happened. Will you tell us a little bit about the founding of Fort Mifflin? So like you said, Fort Mifflin is a fort on the Delaware River near Philadelphia. And there were ideas about putting fortifications into this area as early as 1626. So at the time, it was mostly Swedes, Dutch, English in the area. And the fort itself that we know today was originally constructed by the British in 1771. And it sits on a little bit of land called Mud Island, and it's bordered by the river and to this day still has a moat. And there is a photo of a map at the time that I'd be happy to post so our listeners can kind of get an idea of what this might have looked like. Sure. What I'll do is, uh, Dre has shared a bunch of photos with me, and they will be all up in the show notes. So you guys can go back and refer to those with the show notes. The fort saw its first big activity in the fall of 1777, and it was a whopper. So at this point, we were in the midst of the Revolutionary War, and the British had captured Philadelphia. So they badly needed supplies for the winter to be able to stay in the city. They had a fleet of supply ships, and they were ready to head up the Delaware River. The only problem is that they were surrounded by the Continental Army. So the Continentals had captured the fortifications on Mud Island in 1775, and they had a garrison of 200 men stationed there. And their mission was to prevent the British ships from going up the river to the last extremity. Hmm. So the Continentals, you know, when they heard about the British plan, they reinforced the fort. So there were now 400 men there. And along with another fort across the river, they held off the British ships for about six weeks. So this was a big deal. These guys were cold. They were ill, they were starving, but they held in there. So finally, on November 10th, the British ships that were stationed in the river, they decided to just barrage the fort. They started firing. And every night, the men in the fort would kind of crawl out of cover and they would repair as much of the damage as they could. And to give it kind of some perspective of how bad this was, the British ships, they totaled about 228 cannons. This is compared to the 10 cannons that were in the fort. Oh, man, that's an unfair yeah. advantage. <laughs> and the bombardment was incredibly heavy. Um, reportedly, about a thousand cannonballs were fired at the fort in one hour. Wow. It's and amazing Marines, anything stood. Not much of it did at this point. And the Marines on the ships actually threw hand grenades at the men in the fort. So it was a really heavy bombardment. And eventually, the Continentals, they ran out of ammunition. They were cold, they were starving, and they were exhausted. So on the night of November 15th, they crawled into their boats, they muffled their oars, and they rowed across the river to Fort Mercer. 
And the last men that crossed the river actually set fire to the fort. And all in all, about three quarters of um, that garrison of 400 men died. Wow. That's a lot of people to die in a battle. Yeah. And if you have a chance to look at the photos or ever visit the fort, it's, it is not large. Wow. We've gotten through the Revolutionary War. So did the British, it, was, it, was the fort just kind of left alone then since they'd set fire to it? Or did the British try to repair it and use it? Not really. There wasn't much activity. Um, the main goal was to open up the shipping through the Delaware River so there was a path to Philadelphia. After the war, the fort was maintained. It was used a little bit during the War of 1812, but there wasn't anything kind of big hubbub of activity going on there until the Civil War. Okay. With this, the fort had had a lot of repairs and rebuilding throughout the years, but they really ramped up repairs in 1863 because the fort would be used for a new purpose. Um, they decided to turn it into a prison. Mm. So, yeah, and this was because during the Civil War, both the Confederate and the Union armies, um, they had more prisoners than they could handle. So all sorts of locations were turned into prisons, um, warehouses, ships, what have you. They just needed a place to keep people. So several kinds of prisoners were actually kept at Fort Mifflin, which is really interesting. First, there were Confederate prisoners of war. There were Union soldiers. And then there were also civilians. And, of course, the groups were housed separately. And the treatment of each group kind of varied a little bit. I'm sure the prisoners of war got a little bit worse treatment. <laughs> if you look at the history of the fort and you look at the hauntings, what you're going to hear about a lot is underground tunnels and casemates, which are basically bomb-proof shelters. They're in a part of the fort in one of the corners, and these are underground rooms. Uh, originally, they were used to store ammunition, but if you kind of imagine a big vaulted room, it's about the size of a basketball court. There's a stone floor, there's brick walls and ceiling, um, very small kind of slit window openings that go directly to the outside. And there's one door, a small fireplace at the end, so take a look at the photos so you kind of get an idea of what it looks like. Um, but what you're going to notice is that even with the modern electric lighting, it's very dark in there. And during reenactments, this is where my group sleeps. And when we turn off the electricity and we just have a fire and some candles burning, it really is quite dark and it can get really drafty and damp and cold. And I kind of got the feeling when I looked at the pictures, it feels very claustrophobic, too. It can be. You know, in the in the casement that you see in the photos, the POWs from the Battle of Gettysburg were actually held there. And there was many as 216 men in one casement. Whoa, that'd be like yeah. on top of each other. I don't even know how they could sit down. Well, that was one of the issues. We're not quite sure whether they had beds or were just sleeping on the floor, which I definitely wouldn't want to do. It's cold. It's damp. It's really dirty. Um, and, you know, from being there with the reenactment, I can tell you when you get about 60 people in that room, it starts to feel very crowded. Mm. Other group that was kept were civilians. Uh, most notably, there were 44 that were suspected of a Confederate conspiracy to lead an armed uprising. They were tried and the last seven weren't released until after the war ended. Okay. And the last group was Union soldiers. So if you violated military rules or you know, things like desertion and subordination, you would be sent there. And there was actually a mass uprising in 1863, and then also a failed tunnel escape in 1864. And we're going to talk a little bit later about William Howe, but he was a notable prisoner. 
So you're going to hear about him a little bit later, and he was a Union soldier. And the conditions were really bad. The casemates, in a lot of cases, the fireplaces didn't work well. I mentioned that there was a moat that surrounded the fort, and this was clogged with rot, so it smelled really bad. (laughs) Great. Um, Yeah, they were cold, they were damp, they were dirty, they were really dark places, full of vermin. There There was no cleaning service at that point in time. Sure. And typhoid and dysentery, it affected the prisoners and the guards the same. They used the same water sources. So really, there was a lot of disease and a lot of death because of that. So in addition to that, um, punishments could include whipping, branding, hard labor with an iron ball and a chain attached at the ankle. So really a lot of misery going on. Yeah, this was definitely not a place you wanted to be during the Civil War, clearly. Yeah. Because of these kind of historical events, a lot of the experiences that people had and a lot of the entities that are reported to be there are from the Revolutionary War period and the Civil War period. The fort did keep going after this. It kind of had fallen into disrepair, and even back then it was a tourist destination. But in 1917, it was declared a National Historic Monument. But the story wasn't over. Um, when World War I broke out, older military facilities were pressed into service. And money was provided to repair and modernize parts of the fort. And the fort served as part of the Fort Mifflin Naval Ammunition Depot. So millions of pounds of ammunition were stored there. And engineers actually built a really small railroad to connect it to two other depots adjacent. So if you visit today, there are large portions that are kind of blocked off by chain link fences. But you can kind of still get an idea of just how enormous this complex was. And they continued to store ammunition there even after the war until about 1929. So at this point, the proximity of such a large store of ammunition to the city of Philadelphia, it caused a public anxiety. So it was actually, um, there were protests and the ammunition was redistributed to other locations. That's a long time for it to run as a fort because most people would think a historic fort like this, probably after the Civil War, it was done. So it's nice that it did get used during World War One and Two as well, because we think, you know, the, the wars didn't happen over here. So we didn't really have a use for the forts, but clearly we did, especially as ammunition depots. It is. And even as recently as World War Two, they actually installed some anti-aircraft guns because, you know, the location is on the coast. So there were some anti-aircraft guns just in case. But the fort was decommissioned in 1954, and it was named the National Historic Landmark in 1970. So that would be a really old fort. It's dating back to before the Declaration of Independence was signed. So long time. It it is. It's one of the longest serving forts in the country. You might be surprised and shocked to learn this, but Fort Mifflin is one of the most haunted sites in America. That's what we love here at History Goes Bump. So I can't wait to hear about this because there's a lot of different ghosts going on here. There is um, as many as 25 different entities and supernatural phenomena have been reported. So I'm just kind of going to go over the main ones. So first we have Jacob the Blacksmith. And there's a small blacksmith shop on the site. And in the photos, you can take a look at it. It's not very big. And the story is that the blacksmith had an ongoing argument with the fort's commander. So Jacob wanted to keep the back door to the shop open while he worked. It's a smithy. It gets very, very hot. And it's said that you can actually hear a hammer hitting an anvil around the building. But then when you go in to peek into the windows or walk in, it's completely quiet. Hmm. Uh, It's also said that the back door keeps opening on its own and will just slam open. 
So the last time I was at the fort, I got very curious about this. And I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but the door is actually on very well-oiled hinges. It's really easy to move. I mean, you can push it open just by tapping it with a finger. And the ground in that area is kind of bumpy and uneven. So there's kind of a chance that the building is just on a slant and the door happens to swing open. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to be visiting again in November. So I'm going to check it out again. But what's really interesting to know, too, is TAPS or, you know, the Ghost Hunter show. They actually investigated the site in 2008. And what they reported in that area was a sense of dread. You can definitely go online on YouTube and check it out. It's really cool. Well, it would make sense that you're having an issue with the door here if they would have this ongoing argument about keeping the door open or closing it. It would be almost like the fight was continuing on in the afterlife. I'm opening the door. No, you're not. It could be. And, you know, when I go back and visit, um, I will wait for a quiet moment and I will creep around and see if anything happens. And I'm a, a skeptical believer. I think you probably are, too. So, yeah, I could believe that maybe it is just the door is old and it has a way of opening and closing on those hinges on its own. You know what? You never know. And the wonderful thing is, is that the site is open to anyone that would like to come and investigate. So if you're on the East Coast or you're visiting and you want to give it a test, this is one of those sites where you can actually go and they have events where you can spend the night and wander the fort and investigate. Sounds like a meetup to me. (laughs) Maybe someday. We'll see. There's another entity there. Um, Now, the fort now has electric lighting throughout and in all the buildings. And this entity is known as the Lamplighter. And it's frequently seen walking on the second story balcony of a barracks building that was built around the War of 1812. He usually appears in the evening at twilight and carries a long pole with a little flickering light at the end and appears to be lighting the lamps that would have been hung on those balconies. Interesting. So how high up would you say this second story balcony is? If you took a header off there, would, would it kill you? No, not at all. Just imagine a modern balcony on the second floor of a house today. The building that we're talking about, there are no interior stairs. So back then you just built the barracks as a box and you would put a balcony on the outside and then stairs from the balcony leading to the ground floor. Okay. Um, so that's how a lot of the barracks buildings kind of work. So it makes sense. And especially given the time period in which this building is built, that is how you would light the lamps in the evenings. Interesting. So it makes you wonder if maybe this is perhaps something residual that people are just seeing this random person who used to go around lighting those lamps and it just is something that's continuing on in a kind of a tape-like fashion or we're looking into a different time period through space and time rather than somebody who died and is just continuing on their, their job. Yeah, that's what I think too. And the reports say that it's actually, it's a very faint outline. So I'm really curious to check it out the next time I visit. Sure. Another experience that some of visitors might have is a friendly man dressed as a Revolutionary War soldier, and he takes you on a tour around the grounds. Visitors compliment the site on what an excellent docent he is. And the only problem is that there's no costumed staff working on those days, and there's nobody on staff who actually matches that description. And this is something that's happened very frequently. And it's thought that he was one of the men who died during the bombardment. Now, I can't speak to this personally because when we're there reenacting, the entire fort is filled up with men dressed as Revolutionary War soldiers. He could be blending in and we would never know. Oh, sure. It would be very easy if he was, you know, not fading or anything like that. 
Yeah, and the report is that he's very real and people just assume that he is a regular person just dressed up and giving tours. It makes you wonder if this really is what it appears to be, somebody who died during the bombardment, what he must think is going on if he's interacting with people. Like, are the bombs still coming in? You wouldn't think that he'd be like, oh, yeah, the restrooms are over there. You think he'd be more (laughs) like, duck and run. We're going to (laughs) die. Yeah. And that's something that I've always wondered about, you know, for for entities like this, the level of interaction and the level of presence, you know, I've never experienced something like that. Um, I'd love to talk to anybody who has. Mm -hmm. Um, So that absolutely fascinates me because, you know, I can understand natural phenomena, holding on to energy, residual things. But this is a very different level of interaction and consciousness. So it really fascinates me. And, you know, again, one of those things that I would really love to investigate next time I'm there. I totally agree with you. It's one thing to have people tell you that they see a full body apparition, but to actually interact with it and talk to it, that is something that's amazing. Yeah. But the only crux of the matter is, is that when this interaction is going on, people don't know that it's happening. That's true. Because they assume he's a real person. So the next spirit that you're going to probably hear about is the screaming lady. And this spirit's actually attributed to a woman named Elizabeth Pratt. And Dale Kutzmark and his team, the Ghost Research Society, they have a great report of their investigation online. So if you guys want to check it out, they have the EVPs, they have photos, and they really investigated this this story heavily. And they kind of summarize it as Elizabeth, she was married to an officer, and her daughter, who lived with them at the fort, fell in love with an enlisted man and wanted to marry him. So Elizabeth couldn't accept this, and she disowned her daughter. And the daughter died of typhoid fever before they could reconcile. And this threw Elizabeth into a really deep depression, and she hanged herself over the balcony of the second floor of the officer's quarters, which is coincidentally where the lamplighter is seen lighting lamps. Hmm. So it is true that screams have been heard in the area, and the Taps and Ghost Hunters team, they captured an EVP in this area that sounds like a child asking for mommy. And the police have also been called out several times to investigate the screams. To this day, still can't figure it out. But they did look into the real story of Elizabeth Pratt, and it's actually even more tragic than the ghost story. Um, She was a real person, and she was the wife of Sergeant Pratt, who was stationed at the fort. However, family never lived in the officers' quarters because they weren't built yet. The family lived in another part of the fort, and that's a spot that does have quite a bit of reported activity. And we know all this because the fort used to have a cemetery. And unfortunately for all of you who like to visit old cemeteries, it did get moved at some point. But the interment records are still available, and they confirm that Elizabeth did have two children. One was a son that was born at the fort, and he died on July 20th, 1802, and he was an infant at this time. The other child is a daughter. Um, She died December 6th, 1802. And the records include a note that she was a child. So this means that she was probably about 12 years old or younger when she died. So definitely wasn't marrying anybody. And Elizabeth herself died on February 11th, 1803. So quite a sad story. All three of them are thought to have died of yellow fever. And annual epidemics were pretty common during those years. If you look at records of Philadelphia, you will see yellow fever epidemics in 1801, 1802, and the years after that. Yellow fever spread by mosquitoes, and they'd be pretty prevalent around Fort Mifflin. The moat is pretty shallow, and there's swamps. 
wonderful breeding ground for mosquitoes. So not a surprise that the epidemic spread there. Absolutely. I mean, it is a better story that she didn't kill herself over having this issue, but to have both of your children die in the same year and then she died shortly thereafter must have been devastating for her husband. Yeah. The screaming, it would be completely understandable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you would think, I mean, her life was clearly cut short and then to lose both of your children, I could see why you would you would be screaming. Yeah. And within about six months of each other. So that's that's really tragic. Plus, with yellow fever, I had never, we talked so much about yellow fever on the podcast because so many people died from it in a lot of these older cities. And I never really thought about what that was like. And then when we did the old city jail in Charleston and did the tour there, and he was describing what yellow fever did to the body and stuff and just the way people looked. I mean, they basically looked like what I would describe as a zombie. And I can't imagine what it would have been like to have died from that kind of illness as well. And, you know, I think one of the most tragic parts of this is the epidemics were annual. They were ongoing. So they did know that once you started getting symptoms, people knew what course the disease took. So I think that also made it even sadder is that you knew what was going to happen. And there really wasn't anything you could do to prevent it. Mm -hmm. The next famous haunting And that is William H. Howe. So again, if you're looking up information about the fort, this is one of those personalities that you are definitely going to come across. And the stories kind of vary. Basically, it goes that he was a Civil War deserter, a traitor, a murderer. He was captured and held at Fort Mifflin, and then he was hung on gallows built in the middle of the fort. So I kind of looked into this a little bit, and once again, the truth is a lot more tragic than the story. Howe was a private with the local Pennsylvania regiment during the Civil War. He was very highly esteemed by his superiors, so today we would be calling him a war hero. And he was injured at the Battle of Fredericksburg in Virginia. And he and some other men were told to go to the hospital in D.C. to recuperate. Now, when they reached the hospital, there was no more room. So Howe left his companions behind. He actually went home to Pennsylvania to recover. And one of the ailments that was listed was inflammation of the bowels which kind of sounds like dysentery. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a very common ailment in the military at the time, but it's a really awful condition. It's severe abdominal cramps and very frequent bloody diarrhea. Not pleasant back then for sure. Not at all. Actually, I think it's really surprising that he managed to make it back to Pennsylvania (laughs) in that condition. Unfortunately, when the local union officers found out about this, they went to Howe's home to arrest him. Desertion, not a good thing even back then. How actually fired two shots out of the window. When the men started hammering on the door, he got out of bed, he fired two shots out of the window, and the men fled. How didn't know that he'd actually shot one of the men, and the man did die. Neighbors removed his body. How stayed in the house, kept recovering, and a couple of days later, he was arrested and taken to Fort Mifflin to stand trial. And he was charged with desertion and murder. He was found guilty, and he was sentenced to death by hanging. And during his time at Fort Mifflin, he was kind of held in an underground cell. And eventually he was executed August 26th, 1864. So at the time, he was only 24 years old. And he has the distinction of being the only person ever executed at the fort. Interesting. Yeah. And he's been associated with an entity that they call the Faceless Man, who's seen mostly around casement number five. And, you know, a lot of people ask, why Faceless? What's, What's going on with that? Well, at the time, it was customary to put a bag over the head of the person that you were hanging. And, you know, I'm not sure if it was 
for the comfort of the person who was going to die. Um, but most likely it was to spare the audience the sight of someone choking to death, which it could take some time and be pretty grotesque. Absolutely. If they didn't break their neck, it could take 20 minutes or more. Yeah, but it might be a case of mistaken identity because in 2006, uh, Wayne Irby, he's the Ford's caretaker, and he was mowing the grass. And the rear wheel, wheel of his riding mower kind of started sinking. So he got the mower unstuck and he did a little bit of digging to figure out kind of what the hole was about. So doing exactly what you're not supposed to do at a historical site when a hole opens up, which is to start digging. But he wasn't kind of sure what it was going about on with it. Um, and he found steps leading down and into the side of the fort. So the area was roped off. And I remember visiting the site that year. An event we had there was just around this time. So I remember speaking with Wayne about this discovery. And at that point, it was still kind of like you could see the top three steps and it was a hole and it was just roped off with caution tape. And the archaeologists were going to be coming in to excavate. And when they did, they found stairs leading down. Then they found a kind of a short underground hallway and then a small room and then a slightly larger room. So if you kind of imagine a stone room, it's about the size of a walk-in closet. And this leads into a second room. And that's about the size of a large bath. And that's one of the photos that I shared. So people kind of get an idea of how, how this space looked. They thought that this was the original powder magazine. So powder magazine is where you would store the gunpowder. So you needed a place that was dry and you kind of wanted to put it a little bit away from everything. So in case there was an explosion, not that many people would get hurt and you wouldn't damage the main parts of the fort. But we also know that this is where William Howe was actually kept. And we know this because he wrote his name on the wall. So how convenient and how wonderful that graffiti was just as prevalent back then as it is today. Sure. Um, and you can take a look at his signature in one of the photos that we're going to share. <laughs> it does make you think of, we think writing your name and saying blah, blah, blah was here is something that we do in our modern world. But clearly they did it back then. He wanted somebody to remember him and that he had been there. And what's great about the way this was discovered is this isn't like somebody could have gone down there and scratched it into the wall because you would have had to have known the history. You would have had to have known that he was in there. And what this does is gives verification to the story that you were telling that this is where he was kept. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting. You know, unfortunately, now we don't know who our faceless man in casement number five might be. Sure. So we'll see. But we definitely know where William Howe was kept. And this area is now called casement 11. Um, if you want to visit, you absolutely can. They opened everything up, so you can definitely take a look. It's a bit claustrophobic. Um, I've never sensed anything down here, but this wasn't the case when the TAPS, the Ghost Hunters group, investigated. When that team went there, they reported a crouching figure in the corner. They were hearing footsteps. They had flashlight and camera malfunctions. They reported that the air thickened. They heard breathing. They heard footsteps. They heard scratching. They had feelings of not being alone. And at one point during the investigation, one of the men sensed a cold spot and he looked through this vent shaft into the larger room. So imagine kind of looking through a small window and he saw a face with blonde hair and a scraggly beard looking at back at him. Definitely not something you would expect and can be quite startling. They also caught some EVPs in this area. One of them seemed to be saying the boss wants it deeper. And the team kind of talked to Wayne about this later on. And Wayne confirmed that casement 
Checkmate 11 was refurbished in 1861. And during this project, part of the floor was dug up and the room was made deeper. And if you go and you visit, you can kind of take a look and see where the original floor appears to have been and where it was kind of sunk down about half a foot to make it a little bit deeper so that you could actually stand up straight in that area. They also caught another EVP in the room that seemed to be saying, can I get some water? Interesting. I like that uh, the deeper one that it obviously has something that kind of goes with it too. So, hmm. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's really interesting. Now the the original discovery of the stairs happened in 2006. The archaeologists were excavating in 2006 and 2007. And then um, the ghost hunters kind of investigation was in 2008. So I actually really like the fact that they went in there so soon after this area had been discovered. So it kind of hadn't been tramped through by a million visitors. Um, so I really appreciated that. And if you go online, you can listen to these EVPs. So it's it's really interesting. Very cool. Yeah. And the fort, you know, not the only things that have happened. I mean, throughout the fort, people have reported disembodied voices of children, men, women, dogs barking when there were no dogs anywhere. There's a figure of a sad man who appears to be walking on the road toward one of the gates. Um, people report the sense of kind of fire and fresh baked bread kind of wafting around the fort. Um, now, I, I would suggest to take that part with a grain of salt because as reenactors, we have the fireplaces going and we cook there. So those smells would not be anything out of the ordinary. Gotcha. But what also is reported is that people have been touched, they've been pushed, they've been pulled, and sometimes they've actually been restrained. Wow. <laughs> now that would not yeah. be pleasant. Yeah. So it makes me really excited to be spending the night there um, <laughs> in a few months. So, But I'm going to go a little bit into some of the personal experiences that I've had at this site. Great. One of which is kind of the bathroom area. Now, when TAPS, the ghost hunters were there, they reported seeing a shadowy figure near the ladies' room. And this is one of the fort's old buildings, and it's been converted into modern bathrooms and a gift shop. So definitely a place that everybody can visit. And I've been to Fort Mifflin over 10 times. Usually we camp there in November when it's very, very cold. And the ladies' room is one of the few places with heat. So it's a really nice place to change your clothes, to get dressed in the mornings, or during the event just to kind of duck in there and warm up a little bit. But I always get the creeps in there. And I get a feeling of being watched. And a few times, just after I've walked out of the ladies' room, there's a little hallway there that leads to the outside. And I've kind of gotten the sense that somebody else was walking in the door. So I've turned around to kind of get out of their way or hold the door open for them, but there was nobody there. So I'm not a big scaredy cat. I'm pretty used to walking around historical sites at night. But this is definitely just one of those places where if I have to go, I try and bring a buddy. So it's interesting. You've had that feeling. And then the ghost hunters reported the same kind of thing. And I put a lot of credibility to people feeling like, because I think all of us know what it feels like to have somebody kind of in your space and you kind of move out of the way or you grab the door again because you want to hold it for them. So I think we all know that feeling and to get that feeling and then look around and go, oh, I don't have it does make you wonder why you would get that feeling. It is. And, you know, I think that that sense of being stared at is something that all of us can relate to. And that's what happens to me in this area. Sure. We've all had that where you're across a room and all of a sudden you look up and somebody's got their eyes locked on you. And it's almost like you could tell they were looking at you. So sure. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. And there there actually is a lot of investigation that's been done into that phenomena. And there's a great book out there called The Sense of Being Stared At that actually explores this. So if you get a chance to check it out, really do. Um, it's a fun read and really quite informative about, you know, our sensory perceptions and human psychology, too. Thanks for sharing that, because I didn't know there was a book about that. But that is something I've always thought about, because it happens to me all the time. I'll just be sitting there, I'll look over my shoulder, it's like, and that person's looking at you, and you're going, how did I know that somebody was looking at me? Creepy part is, is when you get that feeling, and you turn around, and there's nobody. Yeah, that would be a lot worse. And I've never had that happen. So yeah. So the next spot kind of where I've had things happen to me is in those casemates. So we were talking about you know, there was a heavy bombardment in that area. And then during the Civil War, this is where all the prisoners were kept in really miserable conditions. And the reports in that area, there's pale outlines, there's shadows, there's faceless men in Confederate uniforms walking around. Um, People experience camera problems, feelings of not being alone. And, you know, kind of given the history of that spot, and the number of deaths that would have happened there, it completely makes sense. So one of the entities that we talked about was the faceless man. And this is usually in Casement 5. And when the ghost hunters visited, their thermal camera actually caught a heat signature. So it looked like somebody was sitting on one of the beds there, but there was nobody there. And for a long time, it was thought that this was William Howe because he, they thought he was being held there. But now that we found Casemate 11, we really can't be sure. So we don't know who it is. Like I said before, the fort has a lot of really great events. So I've been at the fort as a reenactor, but I also took part in one of their paranormal investigation kind of sleep with the ghosts programs. And what this is, is they have a limited number of tickets. So maybe only 20 people at a time are allowed into the fort and you can bring it any equipment that you want. And you basically get run of the buildings and the entire fort for the whole night. So a friend and I thought it would be fun to do this. So we got a couple of hoagies over at the steak and cheese place and headed over to the fort. And we were just sitting in casemate number five. There's usually benches scattered around so you can find a nice place to sit. And we were just sitting catching up, really eating our hoagie, drinking our Gatorade and chatting. And then all of a sudden we got a sense that somebody was in the room with us. Kind of one of those things where you're mid-conversation and all of a sudden you both stop talking. We looked around, there was nothing in the room, we couldn't see anything, but we definitely both had the sense that there was a presence. Both of us were looking in the same spot, which was an end of the casemate. Didn't get any kind of threatening sense, just a presence. We tried talking to it. I didn't have an EVP recorder or anything like that, but we did try asking questions, didn't get any answer, and kind of just sat there in silence. It lasted about 10 minutes, and then it just disappeared. Bam. So that was really, really kind of interesting. And if you look at photos from other people who've investigated, you can see there's kind of misty thing. You can kind of see funny lines. So if you ever get a chance to visit, definitely take some time, sit in the casemate and just see something might happen. Sounds like it. (laughs) Yeah, my creepiest experience that happened wasn't quite so nice. So like I said, as reenactors, when we do a history event, we stay for the whole weekend. So usually what happens is we arrive on Friday night, we settle in in one of the casements, and then we stay there until Sunday afternoon. So I'll share a photo so you can kind of get an idea of what this looks like. But there was an event a few years ago, And I was walking back from the bathroom to the casemate. 
And this was a Saturday morning. And to walk back from the bathroom, you kind of go along a little flagstone path, kind of like a little sidewalk. And then you go into the casemate tunnel and the tunnel kind of bends. And then the door to the casemate is right to the left. So this was in the morning. So before the site opened to visitors, so I wasn't fully dressed. I didn't have my cap on. I didn't have my hat on yet. But thanks to an experiment with Clairol, what I did have was very long blonde hair <laughs> and a ponytail. So I came around the bend and I was slowing down to open the door to the casemate. And then I felt a really hard yank on my ponytail. Yikes. Yeah, like one of those really hard yanks where you almost fall backwards. Wow, that is really hard. Yeah, well, what I did is I turned around and I was getting ready to smack whoever was behind me doing this, but there was nobody there. And I definitely got the chills. I definitely got an uncomfortable feeling. Has not happened since, but then again, I haven't been blonde since then. So while I was collecting information for this podcast, I actually read that there were reports of an entity in that area that seems to have something against blonde-haired women. So great for any of you blonde listeners out there who would like to visit and give it a go. Let us know what happens. Yeah, we'll put you out as bait, see if you get the same treatment that Drea did. Yeah, but it, it really is a fantastic site to visit. They have events year-round. So for the history buffs, our big revolutionary war reenactment is November 10th and 11th. So if you're in the area, pop by and say hi. If you're more kind of the creepy, ghosty experience person, they have a lot of events, especially in October. So there's candlelight walking ghost tours. They have open investigation evenings where you can bring equipment and they kind of let you stay till really late at night. And then my favorite is the sleeping with the ghosts. So that's where they let you spend the entire night. So you show up Saturday afternoon. You can stay till Sunday morning. They treat you to a very nice pancake breakfast. And you can bring any equipment that you want. All the buildings are open. You can investigate when and where you want. There's usually a room that's kind of designated as the home base that has coffee and refreshments. And it's limited to a very small number of people. And they encourage you to kind of spread out and rotate. So you're not going to have 20 people inside the blacksmith's shop trying to record an EVP. You really kind of end up walking around by yourself. And it's really nice. So if you do catch something, you don't have a lot of surrounding chatter and clutter to kind of mess up your recordings. That's nice. Do you guys, like when you go and do something like that on an overnight, do you take your sleeping bags with you or do you just kind of sit up? And if you fall asleep sitting up, that's fine. So when we go as reenactors, um, we we go, it's like going camping. You move in. Gotcha. Um, you know, we have tents. So you stay in these really nice canvas tents. I bring my modern sleeping bag. I'm not really keen on freezing. At yeah. Night, so I just bring my, you know, nice minus 40 degree mummy bag. And during the day, I throw a woolen blanket over it just so it's not sticking out. At the fort, there's actually wooden bunk beds that are there. And if you visit, you're going to see them. So we get to stay in those. And yeah, it's, it's just like you're going anywhere. Um, if you're doing the sleeping with the ghosts, they will give you an area where you can sleep if you want to. So you can bring your stuff. Let's say, hey, I need to take a two or three hour nap in the middle of this investigation. That's great. There's a designated area for that. Nobody will bother you and you can take a nap. Very cool. Drea, this sounds like a fascinating location. Definitely a fort that I need to visit. Thank you so much for suggesting it and doing the research and sharing all of that with us. Absolutely. Thank you very much for letting me do something that's been on my bucket list for a long time. Ever since I started listening to the podcast, I've 
been an avid listener. Can't wait till the new episodes come out. So when the idea of actually being on it came out, I had a complete geek out moment. (laughs) So thank you so much for letting me share one of my favorite places with the listeners. Well, this is why I love having listeners on because it's somebody coming on who doesn't have an agenda. They're not trying to sell a book. They just want to share how much they love a location and the experiences that they've had there. Because sometimes you can't just share that with the person sitting next to you on the bus. They don't want to know about you know, a ghost pulling your ponytail. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to know about a ghost pulling my ponytail. (laughs) But but if any of the listeners are in the area and you ever want to visit, please feel free to give me a shout out. I'll be happy to pop over and kind of run around with you. And of course, during one of the events, if you're going, I would love it if you shared it on the Facebook page. And if you have any photos or you have any experiences, if you do go visit, definitely let us know. Yeah, I have a feeling we will have you back on again, Drea. Thank you again. Have a great rest of your Friday the 13th. Hopefully it's good luck for you all day. Bye-bye. Fort Mifflin has a rich history, and it's nice to know that it continues to have a living history. With all the reported paranormal activity, it seems to have a dead history as well. Is Fort Mifflin haunted? That is for you to decide. Another one of those places I've got to visit when I finally make my way up to Philadelphia to visit Dina from the Twisted Philly podcast. As we mentioned during the interview, there are several photos here that Dre has shared with me. So if you want to check out some of the sites around the fort, they're very cool pictures and you can kind of get a feel for what she was talking about and how claustrophobic some of those casements could be. I don't know that I'd want to spend overnight in them. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. I got an email from Brandon letting me know that he had done the ghost tour at Colonial Williamsburg. Nothing happened to him, but he got some very interesting pictures that he shared with me, and I want to thank him for that. I'll put a few of those up in the podcast notes as well. The creepiest one is that there were a couple of photos of an obelisk that marked where Judge Nathaniel Beverly Tucker and his third wife, Lucy Ann Smith, are buried, and this is in the Bruton Parish Hall Cemetery. He was a highly respected man within the community, an author, a judge, a proponent of Southern secession, and he also mentored Edgar Allan Poe, apparently. According to the tour guide, after the obelisk was erected, over time, the image of what looks to be a skull appeared in the granite. She also mentioned that the obelisk was destroyed at one point and rebuilt with the skull reappearing. Whether this is fact or not, I'm not sure and cannot verify, but the obelisk does look pretty neat. And when I looked at the picture, I saw what looked like a skull to me. And then he has some pictures from the Peyton Randolph house that has some weird shadowing on it. He also shared that there's a natural maze that runs behind the governor's mansion. And it's often reported by guards that they hear footsteps when they know no one else is in the maze. A lot of William and Mary students see it as a rite of passage to go through the maze at night. So, of course, the guards have their hands full with that. A story our tour guide told us was that two guards heard footsteps and decided to trap the intruders within the maze. One went around towards the end while the other guard went through from the beginning. They met each other in the middle after going through the entire maze, and when they confirmed they didn't see anyone but could still hear the footsteps, they got the heck out of there. We were also told of two students, a young couple from William and Mary, that tried sneaking into the maze at night. The guy hoisted his girlfriend over the hedge. When he finally climbed over, he found his girlfriend crumpled on the ground dead or throat slit. An escaped mental patient from a nearby asylum had been on the other side of the hedge and attacked her, and when the young man had climbed over, the mental patient took off. I believe the police managed to catch him, however. So I don't know if that was a true story or not, but oh my gosh, pretty creepy legend nonetheless. And I want to thank Brandon for sharing those with me. Don't forget we have Cemetery Bingo, our second scavenger hunt that we've done, coming up on August 11th in 2018. 
Looking forward to having you guys join me. Wanted to let you guys know I was interviewed on the Journey Through the Gate podcast. Episode number 16 had a great fun on there with Cisco and Steve. We talked about a variety of things, some of the haunting experiences I've had. We talked about some of the episodes that we've done, other haunted locations. Steve and Cisco shared some of the experiences they've had as well. I think you'll really enjoy the interview, so you could check that out. They're up on all the podcast catchers at Journey Through the Gate. I know there are many listeners who have missed my co-host Denise being here on the podcast, and I want to let y'all know that she has branched out on her own and started her own podcast. She just launched it on Friday the 13th here in July of 2018. Hopefully you all survived that Friday the 13th. If you want to check out her new podcast, you'll find it at The Spirited Voyager. And obviously she's continuing on with doing haunted traveling and such have some Apple podcast reviews to share. The first one is from the Steve Bart. Just what I was looking for, five stars. I'm an avid history buff for odd and paranormal history. Bringing the two together and making it feel like it's your close friend telling the story is amazing. The moment nodities, I could listen to just those all day. With a one-hour drive to work, it makes me look forward to work instead of the dread. LOL. Thank you. Well, thank you, Steve. And I tell you what, the moments and oddity is my favorite part of the show, too. I absolutely love them. And then we have, dude, it's Jim. I thought I left feedback. This is a great podcast. Five stars. So I thought I left feedback, but I didn't. I also told Diane I did too. Anyways, the podcast is great. It talks about the history of things and why things, places might be haunted. Very informative and entertaining. I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Hello, listeners. Mort here. Join me in the cemetery. I've got a cozy grave for you and Diane has videos, bonus episodes, logo gear and the HGB Losers Club for you. Go to patreon.com forward slash history goes bump and support the show. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.